Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, cardio nerds. It's Amit Goyal. Thanks for joining us for this incredible series, The Brand World Chronicles, where we hear about tales of discovery, innovation, and pivotal moments in the story of cardiology. Today, we're in for a real treat as we hear one of my personal favorite stories in this episode, Chapter 4, A Royal Screw-Up and the Discovery of Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy. There are hypertrophic cardiomyopathy centers of excellence sprinkled throughout the world. There are comprehensive ACCAHA guidelines for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy that came out in 2020. There's incredible drug discovery and randomized controlled trials looking at innovations in the management of HCM. We had a whole series on cardioners for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy where we taught about the four P's or four preventions of hypertrophic cardiomyopathy management. Prevent symptoms, prevent stroke and atrial fibrillation, prevent sudden cardiac death in the patient, and prevent sudden cardiac death in the family. Well, today, we get to hear all about how hypertrophic cardiomyopathy was discovered. As we take in this breathtaking series, please remember that CardioNerds is an independent fellow-founded platform with the goal to democratize cardiovascular education. You can support the mission by subscribing to and rating the show, donating via Patreon, getting CardioNerds swag on Teespring, and sharing your love for cardiology on social media. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice, and the views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. Dr. Brunel, I'd like to take you back to what you just mentioned there, you know, another part of your life and another lab. You mentioned the HCM story, and all our listeners and all of us here would love to hear that. Reading Thomas Lee's book, he mentions this moment where Dr. Morrow called you to the OR, I believe in 1958, and said, there's a, there's a terrible screw up here. I've opened this guy's heart and I just can't find anything wrong with it. And now this was someone that had been sent to surgery after you had analyzed his pressure tracings and concluded that aortic stenosis, but due to the location of the obstruction of the tracings, you had determined him to have congenital subaortic stenosis. Yeah. This ends up being the prelude to the characterization, diagnosis, treatment of HCM. You know, I was just in clinic the other day and your teachings on this are exactly how we treated the patient. Can you tell us how the story unfolded? Well, I'm in the cath lab. So this is the period, 58. I'm in the cath lab, director of the cath lab. I'm not yet chief of cardiology. That came at the 61. I'm doing the procedure. Uh, the phone rings. The nurse picks up the phone. She says, uh, Dr. Morrow wants you in the operating room right away. I said to the nurse, I said, please tell him, please tell Dr. Barra I'm in the middle of a procedure. She says, uh, he wants you up there right away. So he's still my boss. Okay, so I asked the fellow to finish the procedure. I go upstairs. Now, in 58, open heart surgery is a big, big deal. It was at the time we did the atrial septal defect, but now it's beginning to settle down. So what we thought that this young man, his early 20s, the loud, 
rasping aortic murmur had a subaortic gradient. And all we could think of was a rare anomaly, which was a congenital membranous subaortic stenosis. So Glenn and I went over the case, and he also reviewed the tracing. So he wasn't entirely, it wasn't all my fault. I reminded him of that. Uh, so anyway, he reads up on this, and he says this should be easy because it's just a matter of opening, doing an aortotomy, and excising that membrane. I can do that. I get up to the OR, and it was uh, sort of a circus. There are people, you know, there are pump technicians, a gaggle of anesthesiologists, many, you know, surgical assistants. It's a big deal. It's like it's like we would uh, have thought of a moonshot. Um, it was still that primitive. He said, you screwed up. You really screwed up. There is no obstruction. I said, I'm still calling him Dr. Morrow. I'm not calling him Glenn. I said, Dr. Morrow, I, uh, I, well, he said, look. He said, see, I can't, I can't fathom. I'm so nervous, excited, upset about it. I can't find any words. So he said, let me show you. He, he puts his finger through the aortic orifice. He has his assistant make an opening in the left atrium. And he, if two fingers meet, he does what you would consider a bimanual examination of the heart. And he had pretty thick fingers. There is no obstruction here. He said, you know, we're going to have trouble getting him off the pump because in those days, if you didn't fix the heart, they also arrested the heart with potassium citrate. It was very hard to get it going. And I'm just, I just don't know what to say. There is no obstruction. So I said, well, I said, yeah, I don't, I can't say I'm sorry, but uh, uh, I leave and I'm sort of walking out with my tail between my legs. And I said, I said, if you can restart the heart, please, Dr. Morrow, stick a needle in the left ventricle and measure the pressure. He had a radial arterial thing. And he grumbled something like, it's not going to do anything. So I go down and I'm very depressed. I mean, this is, this is going to be a young man dying because I screwed up on the nature and the tracing. And, uh, you know, that could be a career-ending mistake. There are certain mistakes that you just don't make. And I called my mother. I didn't call my wife. <laughs> I called my mother. And she said, it's going to be okay. She serves me chicken broth. It's going to be okay. I said, well, I'm going to be fired. She says, they're lucky to have you. And anyway, so I'm feeling a little better. Uh, I'm sitting there just thinking about how the mistake could be made. All of a sudden, Glenn Morrow comes in. He comes down and he sits next down, sits next to me. He puts his arm 
not, not around me, but he you know, puts it, taps me on the shoulder. He said, he said he had a gradient of 90 millimeters of mercury when I stuck his left ventricle. And, and he said, he's in the recovery room. He's going to be okay. So, and he apologizes for having lost his cool. And of course, we have to understand how he could have lost his cool given this incredible circumstance. So the next thing I do is, you know, I, we're all smiles. We're all happy with each other. Our relationship is intact. If anything, it's even stronger than it was before. I, I run to the recovery room and I, and he's got lots of bandages and so on. I can hear that murmur rasping away. I said, what the hell is going on? So this was a period when I would have contact with Glenn. I'm running the cath lab, and it was mainly for surgical patients, pre-op or diagnostic. And we would talk about this case like every other day. And after about a month, and we're not getting anywhere, just can't figure out how you can have obstruction and not have anything that does the obstruction. Although he did say that, you know, he's, he says his boy has a big heart. But there was, you know, he did his bimanual exam. So he says to me around four to six weeks after the event, he said, you know, Gene, I've been in medicine much longer than you. you know, he was 34, I was 28, something like that. I said, yes, I realized that. He said, you know, in medicine, you know, there are sometimes you come across things that you simply can't explain. And, you know, we can go around in circles forever. There are lots of other things that challenge us. I think we should drop this. And I said, okay. And that's where we left it. Until two days later, two days later, the whole thing repeats itself. Exactly the same thing. Well, so we knew there was something up. So we brought both of these. And it was also a young man. We brought both of them back and did angios and saw the bulge of the interventricular septum. And so we knew we had something big. Uh, and we got on top of that. And these patients had not been discovered because people weren't operating on aortic stenosis or subaortic stenosis. It, it, it was new, and therefore this brought along a lot of, unearthed a lot of things. Although, of course, the, you know, the, you, when I studied the ancient literature, there were some French cardiologists who had seen this in the 19th century and there was a, a British surgeon, and uh, Glenn sent him our paper. And he said, well, I've got one just like this, Lord Russell Brock. And so the thing took up. But, but what we did is within a year, we had a dozen cases. Three of them were siblings. So we knew there was an autosomal dominant. And then we looked at the dynamics as I mentioned, we looked at the fact that sometimes the, you'd catheterize them one day and there would be a gradient of 80 and catheterize them the next day, there was a gradient of 20, so something is going on. And we uh, gave them isoprel, which increased the obstruction. 
And I came back with a beta blocker that I just described in my this sad story about missing uh, beta blockaded heart failure. And it's, you know, and it proved to be reasonably useful and so forth. And that was the birth of HCM. Again, an accident. And I guess we were lucky that there was a second accident. Because if we hadn't gotten that second case, uh, then somebody else, it's not that it wasn't discoverable, you know, then somebody else would have. The people in Toronto had were very close on our heels, and they did a wonderful job. Doug Weigel was chief of cardiology there, good friend. Dr. Bronwell, this is one of our favorite stories. And um, at Hopkins, Dr. Ed Casper tells it every single year to the cardiology fellows. And it's just incredibly inspiring. And in fact, we had him on the podcast to talk about the story as well, just because we just needed to get it out there. It really highlights uh, like a multidisciplinary approach, physical exam, trusting your gut, particularly in an era without echo or MRI, and real perseverance to figure out what is going on with this patient. And I know personally, you know, several of my co-fellows think of the story very much when things just don't fit, but they know something's yeah. wrong. It's, it's really amazing. Yeah. Dr. Bronwald, looking back at your time at the NIH overall, you know, you described that your time there so vividly, the excitement and, you know, the energy in the walls is, is palpable, the way you tell your stories of your time there. What would you say are the most valuable lessons that you learned and how did that influence your future positions? Wow, now you can see why this was one of my favorite stories. Be sure to join us for the next episode for another favorite story, Chapter 5, Carotid Sinus Stimulation, Limitation of Infarct Size, and the Open Artery Hypothesis. It's a story that gave birth to my chosen subspecialty of interventional cardiology. See you soon.